Chapter Three, Part Two of the Black Box by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Hidden Hands, Part Two. The windows of Mrs. Reinhold's townhouse were ablaze with light. A crimson drugget stretched down the steps to the curbstone. A long row of automobiles stood waiting. Through the wide-flung doors was visible a pleasant impression of flowers and light and luxury. In the nearer of the two large reception rooms, Mrs. Reinhold herself, a woman dark, handsome, and in the prime of life, was standing receiving her guests. By her side was her son, whose twenty-first birthday was being celebrated. "'I wonder whether that professor of yours will come,' she remarked as the stream of incoming guests slackened for a moment. I'd love to have him here, if it were only for a moment. Everyone's talking about him and his work in South America. He hates receptions, the boy replied, but he promised he'd come. I never thought, when he used to drill science into us at the lectures, that he was going to be such a tremendous big pot. Mrs. Reinhold's plump fingers toyed for a moment complacently with the diamonds which hung from her neck. "'You can never tell in a world like this,' she murmured. "'That's why I make a point of being civil to everybody. Your laundry woman may become a multimillionaire, or your singing master a Caruso. And then, just while they're months on, everyone is crazy to meet them. It's the professor's month just now.' "'Here he is, mother,' the young man exclaimed suddenly. "'Good old boy. I thought he'd keep his word.' Mrs. Reinhold assumed her most encouraging and condescending smile as she held out both hands to the professor. He came towards her, stooping a little more than usual. His mouth had drooped a little, and there were signs of fatigue in his face. Nevertheless, his answering smile was as delightful as ever. "'This is perfectly sweet of you, Professor,' Mrs. Reinhold declared. "'We scarcely ventured to hope that you would break through your rule, but Philip was so looking forward to having you come. You were his favorite master at lectures, you know, and now, well, of course, you have the scientific world at your feet.' "'Later on in the evening, Professor,' she added, watching some very important newcomers, You'll tell me all about your anthropoid ape, won't you? Philip, look after Mr. Ashley. Don't let him go far away. Mrs. Reinhold breathed a sigh of relief as she greeted her new arrivals. Professor Ashley, brother of Lord Ashley, you know, she explained. This is the first house he has been to since his return from South America. You've heard all about those wonderful discoveries, of course. The professor made himself universally agreeable in a mild way, and his presence created even more than the sensation which Mrs. Reinhold had hoped for. In her desire to show him ample honor, she seldom left his side. "'I'm going to take you into my husband's study,' she suggested later on in the evening. "'He has some specimens of beetles.' "'Beetles,' the professor declared, with some excitement, occupied 
precisely two months of my time while abroad. By all means, Mrs. Reinhold. We shall have to go quite to the back of the house, she explained, as she led him along the darkened passage. The professor smiled acquiescently. His eyes rested for a moment upon her necklace. You must really permit me, Mrs. Reinhold, he exclaimed, to admire your wonderful stones. I am a judge of diamonds, and those three or four in the center are, I should imagine, unique. She held them out to him. The professor laid the end of the necklace gently in the palm of his hand and examined them through a horn-rimmed eyeglass. They are wonderful, he murmured, wonderful. Why? He turned away a little abruptly. They had reached the back of the house, and a door from the outside had just been opened. A man had crossed the threshold with a coat over his arm, and was standing now looking at them. How extraordinary, the professor remarked. Is that you, Craig? For a moment there was no answer. The servant was standing in the gloom of an unlit portion of the passage. His eyes were fixed curiously upon the diamonds which the professor had just been examining. He seemed paler even than usual. Yes, sir, he replied. There's a rainstorm, so I'd ventured to bring your Macintosh. Very thoughtful, the professor murmured approvingly. I have a weakness, he went on, turning to his hostess, for always walking home after an evening like this. In the daytime, I'm content to ride. At night, I have the fancy always to walk. We don't walk half enough, Mrs. Reinhold sighed, glancing down at her somewhat portly figure. Dixon, she added, turning to the footman, who had admitted Craig, take Professor Ashley's servant into the kitchen and see that he has something before he leaves for home. Now, Professor, if you will come this way. They reached a little room in the far corner of the house. Mrs. Reinhold apologized as she switched on the electric lights. It's a queer little place to bring you, she said, but my husband used to spend many hours here, and he would never allow anything to be moved. You see, the specimens are in these cases. The professor nodded. His general attitude towards the forthcoming exhibition was merely one of politeness. As the first case was opened, however, his manner completely changed. Without taking the slightest further notice of his hostess, he adjusted a pair of horn-rimmed spectacles and commenced to mumble eagerly to himself. Mrs. Reinhardt, who did not understand a word, strolled around the apartment, yawned, and finally interrupted a little stream of eulogies not a word of which she understood, concerning a green beetle with yellow spots. "'I am so glad you are interested, Professor,' she said. "'If you don't mind, I will rejoin my guests. You will find a shorter way back if you keep along the passage straight ahead and come through the conservatory.' "'Certainly, with pleasure,' the Professor agreed, without glancing up. His hostess sighed as she turned to leave the room. She left the door ajar. The professor's face was almost touching the glass case in which reposed the green beetle with yellow spots. 
Mrs. Reinhold's reception, notwithstanding the temporary absence of its presiding spirit, was without a doubt an unqualified success. In one of the distant rooms the younger people were dancing. There were bridge tables, all of which were occupied, and for those who preferred the more old-fashioned pastime of conversation amongst luxurious surroundings, there was still ample space and opportunity. Philip Reinhold, with a pretty young debutante upon his arm, came out from the dancing room and looked around amongst the little knots of people. "'I wonder where Mother is,' he remarked. "'Looking after some guests somewhere, for certain,' the girl replied. "'Your mother is so wonderful at entertaining, Philip.' "'It's the hobby of her life,' he declared. "'Never so happy as when she can get a hold of someone everyone's talking about, and show him off. Can't think what she's done with herself now, though. She told me. The young man broke off in the middle of his sentence, felt a sudden thrill almost of horror at the sound which rang without warning upon their ears. A woman's cry, a cry of fear and horror, repeated again and again. There was a little rush toward the curtain space which led into the conservatories. Before even, however, the quickest could reach the spot, the curtains were thrown back, and Mrs. Reinhold, her hands clasping her neck, her splendid composure a thing of the past, a panic-stricken, terrified woman, stumbled into the room. She seemed on the point of collapse. Somehow or other, they got her into an easy chair. "'My jewels!' she cried. "'My diamonds!' "'What do you mean, mother?' Philip Reinhardt asked quickly. "'Have you lost them?' "'Stolen!' Mrs. Reinhardt shrieked. "'Stolen there in the conservatory!' They glanced at her open mouth, incredulous. Then a still, quiet voice from the outside of the little circle intervened. "'Instruct your servants, Mr. Reinhold, to lock and bar all the doors of the house,' the professor suggested. "'No one must leave until we have heard your mother's story.' The young man obeyed almost mechanically. There was a general exodus of servants from the room. Someone had brought Mrs. Reinhold a glass of champagne. She sipped it and gradually recovered her voice. I had just taken the professor into the little room my husband used to call the museum, she explained, her voice still shaking with agitation. I left him there to examine some specimens of beetles. I thought that I would come back through the conservatory, which is the quickest way. I was about halfway across it when suddenly I heard the switch go behind me and all the electric lights were turned out. I couldn't imagine what had happened. While I hesitated, I saw, I saw. She broke down again. There was no doubt about the genuineness of her terror. She seemed somehow to have shrunken into the semblance of a smaller woman. The pupils of her eyes were distended. She was white almost to the lips. When she recommenced her story, her voice was fainter. I saw a pair of hands, just hands, no arms, nothing but hands, come out of the darkness. They gripped me by the throat. I suppose it was just for a second. 
I think I lost consciousness for a moment, although I was still standing up. The next thing I remember is that I found myself shrieking and running here, and the jewels had gone. "'You saw no one?' her son asked incredulously. "'You heard nothing?' "'I heard no footsteps. I saw no one,' Miss Reinhold repeated. The professor turned away. "'If you will allow me,' he begged, "'I am going to telephone to my friend Mr. Sanford Quest, the criminologist. An affair so unusual as this might attract him. You will excuse me.' The professor hurried from the room. They brought Mrs. Reinhold more champagne, and she gradually struggled back to something like her normal self. The dancing had stopped. Everyone was standing about in little groups, discussing the affair. The men had trooped towards the conservatory, but the professor met them on the portals. "'I suggest,' he said courteously, "'that we leave the conservatory exactly as it is "'until the arrival of Mr. Sanford Quest. "'It will doubtless aid him in his investigations "'if nothing is disturbed. "'All the remaining doors are locked "'so that no one can escape "'if by any chance they should be hiding.' "'They all agreed without dissent, "'and there was a general movement towards the buffet "'to pass the time until the coming of Mr. Sanford Quest. The professor met the great criminologist and his assistant in the hall upon their arrival. He took the former at once by the arm. Mr. Quest, he began, in a sense, I must apologize for my preemptory message. I am well aware that an ordinary jewel robbery does not interest you. But in this case, the circumstances are extraordinary, I ventured, therefore, to summon your aid. Sanford Quest nodded shortly. As a rule, he said, I do not care to take up one affair until I have a clean slate. There's your skeleton still bothering me, Professor. However, where's the lady who was robbed? I will take you to her, the professor replied. Mrs. Reinhold's story, by frequent repetition, had become a little more coherent, a trifle more circumstantial, the perfection of simplicity and utterly incomprehensible. Quest listened to it without remark, and finally made his way to the conservatory. He requested Mrs. Reinhold to walk with him through the door by which she had entered, and stop at the precise point where the assault had been made upon her. There are one or two plants knocked down from the tiers on the right-hand side and some disturbance in the mold where some larger palms were growing. Quest and Lenora together made a close investigation of the spot. Afterwards, Quest walked several times to each of the doors leading into the gardens. There are four entrances altogether, he remarked, as he lit a cigar and glanced around the place. Two lead into the gardens, one is locked and the other isn't. One connects with the back of the house, the one through which you came, Mrs. Reinhardt, and the other leads into your reception room, into which you passed after the assault. I shall now be glad if you will permit me to examine the gardens outside for a few minutes, alone with my assistant, if you please.' 
For almost a quarter of an hour, Quest and Lenora disappeared. They all looked eagerly at the criminologist on his return, but his face was sphinx-like. He turned to Mrs. Reinhold, who, with her son, the butler, and the professor, were the only occupants of the conservatory. It seems to me, he remarked, that from the back part of the house, the quickest way to reach Maiden Avenue would be through this conservatory and out of that door. There is a path leading from just outside straight to a gate in the wall. Does anyone that you know of use this means of exit? Mrs. Reinhardt shook her head. The servants might occasionally, she remarked doubtfully, but not on nights when I am receiving. The butler stepped forward. He was looking a little grave. I ought, perhaps, to inform you, madam, and Mr. Quest, he said, that I did, only a short time ago, suggest to the professor's servant, the man who brought your Macintosh, sir, he added, turning to the professor, that he could, if he chose, make use of this means of leaving the house. Mr. Craig is a personal friend of mine and a member of a very select little club we have for social purposes. Did he follow your suggestion? Sanford Quest asked. Of that I am not aware, sir, the butler replied. I left Mr. Craig with some refreshments, expecting that he would remain until my return. But a few minutes later I discovered that he had left. I will inquire in the kitchen if anything is known as to his movements. He hurried off. Quest turned to the professor. "'Has he been with you long, this man Craig, Professor?' he asked. The professor's smile was illuminating, his manner simple but convincing. "'Craig,' he asserted, "'is the best servant, the most honest mortal who ever breathed. He would go any distance out of his way to avoid harming a fly. I cannot even trust him to procure for me the simplest specimens of insects or animal life. Apart from this, he is a man of some property which he has no idea what to do with. He is, I think, I may say, too devoted to me the dream of ever leaving my service. You think it would be out of the question, then, Quest asked, to associate him with the crime? The professor's confidence was sublime. I could more readily associate you, myself, or Mr. Reinhold here with the affair, he declared. His words carried weight. The little breath of suspicion against the professor's servant faded away. In a moment or two, the butler returned. It appears, madam, he announced, that Mr. Craig left when there was only one person in the kitchen. He said good night and closed the door behind him. It is impossible to say, therefore, by which exit he left the house, but personally I am convinced that, knowing of the reception here tonight, he would not think of using the conservatory. Most unlikely, I should say, the professor murmured, Craig is a very shy man. He is at all times at your disposal, Mr. Quest, if you should desire to question him. Quest nodded absently. My assistant and I, he announced, would be glad to make a further examination of the conservatory, if you will kindly leave us alone. They obeyed without demur. 
Quest took a seat and smoked calmly, with his eyes fixed upon the roof. Lenora went back to her examination of the overturned plants, the mold, and the whole ground within the immediate environs of the assault. She abandoned the search at last, however, and came back to Quest's side. He threw away his cigar and rose. Nothing there, he asked laconically. Not a thing, Lenora admitted. Quest led the way towards the door. Lenora, he decided, we are up against something big. There's a new hand at work somewhere. No theories yet, Mr. Quest, she asked, smiling. Not the ghost of one, he admitted gloomily. Along the rain-swept causeway of Maiden Avenue, keeping close to the shelter of the houses, his Macintosh turned up to his ears, his hands buried in his pockets, a man walked swiftly along. At every block he hesitated and looked around him. His manner was cautious, almost furtive. Once the glare of an electric light fell upon his face, his face pallid with fear, almost hopeless with despair. He walked quickly, yet he seemed to have little idea as to his direction. Suddenly he paused. He was passing a great building, brilliantly lit. For a moment he thought that it was some place of entertainment. The thought of entering seemed to occur to him. Then he felt a firm touch upon his arm. A man in uniform spoke to him. "'Step inside, brother,' he invited earnestly, almost eagerly, notwithstanding his monotonous nasal twang. "'Step inside and find peace. Step inside and the Lord will help you. Throw your burden away on the threshold.' The man's first impulse at being addressed had seemed to be one of terror. Then he recognized the uniform and hesitated. The light which streamed out from the building seemed warm and pleasant. The rain was coming down in sheets. They were singing a hymn, unmusical, unaccompanied, yet something in the unison of those human voices, one quality, the quality of earnestness, of faith, seemed to make an irresistible appeal to the terrified wanderer. Slowly he moved towards the steps. The man took him by the arm and led him in. There were the best part of a hundred people taking their places after the singing of the hymn. A girl was standing up before them on a platform. She was commencing to speak, but suddenly broke off. She held out her arms toward where the professor's confidential servant stood hesitating. "'Come and tell us your sins,' she called out. "'Come and have them forgiven. Come and start a new life in a new world. There is no one here who thinks of the past. Come and seek forgiveness. For a moment this waif from the rain-swamped world hesitated. The light of an infinite desire flashed in his eyes. Then he dropped his head. These things might be for others. For him, there was no hope. He shook his head to the girl, but sank into the nearest seat, and on to his knees. He repents, the girl called out. Some day he will come. Brothers and sisters, we will pray for him. The rain dashed against the windows. 
The only other sound from the outside was the clanging of the streetcars. The girl's voice, frenzied, exhorting, almost hysterical, pealed out to the roof. At every pause, the little gathering of men and women groaned in sympathy. The man's frame was shaken with sobs. End of chapter 3, part 2